Welcome to the Harvard Center for International Development's Road to Gem 23 Climate and Development Podcast. My name is Charles Hua, and I'm a student at Harvard College and a CID student ambassador. CID's Road to Gem 23 series proceeds and helps launch CID's Global Empowerment Meeting, or GEM, Growing in a Green World. At CID, we work across a global network of researchers and practitioners to build, convene, and deploy talent to address the world's most pressing challenges. On our road to GEM23, we strive to elevate and learn from voices from the countries on the front lines of the climate crisis and will feature important learnings from the leaders who will be active participants at GEM23. This week, we are joined by Wolfgang Fengler, who is the CEO and co-founder of World Data Lab. Wolfgang, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be with you, Charles. So for the listeners out there, can you share a bit about your career working in, in international development? How did you become interested in this space and what has kept you engaged and motivated in this work? Thanks for having me again, Charles. I've been in international development for basically a quarter century. Um, I've been working and been a staff member and a lead economist for the World Bank in various parts of the world, especially in Africa. And Africa is always the continent I, I came back Two, after working on Madagascar, Comoro Islands, then I lived in Kenya, between I lived in Indonesia, and then I covered South Africa and the, the southern part of the continent at the end. And yeah, it's the, that's the beauty of working in an international global institution that you, you can see development from very so many perspectives. And a lot of my work has been shaped by earlier travels, uh, backpacking in the 90s through Africa, trying to climb and climbing, then eventually Kilimanjaro. And they are crossing borders in many many ways in many directions. That has shaped my last half century and led also to the founding of World Data Lab. Wonderful. And why don't you talk a little bit about what World Data Lab does? So what are the problems that World Data Lab seeks to address? And what are some of the key products and solutions that World Data Lab offers to sustainable development? World Data Lab wants to democratize data and get really data out to the world. You know, data can be very complicated, but it can also be very simple. And the way I think data economies and data is being done in the world is still too complicated and too backward looking. And what World Data Lab has done and started to do is to work on the SDGs. My co-founder, Homi Koras, is the architect of the SDGs and started with something very basic, which is if you want to, if you work on global development and want to address the biggest challenges, as your group does, you should start to count, the, know how many poor there are and not how many poor there might have been three years ago. And so we built the World Poverty Clock and that has a ticker and you get the best possible estimate for the number of poor people today and tomorrow, every country, every age group, gender, um, even subnational for some countries, we have built this machinery. And that is actually quite relevant because we all live today and not yesterday. And we want to know what's maybe today and tomorrow. And through this, we have expanded that, that the, the, the capacity to break down data into small and many more relevant pieces and build many other SDG clocks, including most recently the world emissions clock, which I, I expect and hope will reshape um, some of the global debates on emissions. And I know it's doing in the US because we were used for fact-checking a recent presidential town hall at CNN because we have just the number on emissions for every segment, every country, every point in time. And, and so that, that fascination for data and some of the need to combine the, the economist world of the World Bank with the software and, uh, and tech world of Silicon Valley, that's what 
drives World Data Lab. And out of those four good products have also become now um, commercial tools that help companies to expand their global footprint. Thank you. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, it's a great overview. As, as you point out, gaps in data are one of the biggest challenges facing sustainable development. And it's very hard to make evidence-based policy decisions without really robust data to drive the analytical frameworks and the decision-making. This is especially the case for developing countries who lack the data, the computing infrastructure to properly track all of these metrics. So what, uh, how would you characterize the challenge of data globally, particularly for developing countries, and what can they do about this issue, and how can stakeholders help? First, there's no problem with too little data. There is enough data out there. We just need to make sense of it. We need to put it together properly and we need to organize it properly. Obviously, some data will have some bigger margins of error than others, but there is never ever trust anybody who says, who starts his, his work and says there's not enough data. There's enough data. We just need to put it together better. For example, there's a lot of satellite data now for every country. World Data Lab became quite known for modeling poverty in North Korea. And we didn't have a household survey, but we did our best even within regions in North Korea to break down the data that you need to use, you know, you need to combine to use some existing ground truth, maybe from the past that has some resemblance to other parts of the world and that you can then project forward. You can still use certain parameters, some fundamental parameters about people's demography and, and, and trajectory of age. Um, as mentioned, satellite data gives you a lot of insight into population densities, population numbers, the quality of, of some of the key characteristics of people's lives. And if you put this all together, you can always do an estimate. And my main message is it's very good and okay to have an estimate, even if it has um, some margin of error, than just to keep on rambling around and, and talking endlessly about, uh, um, about the uncertainties because we obviously know the world is uncertain. Put something out like the first iPhone, which in today's world would have been pretty rubbish, but at that time was a pretty good iPhone, and then you keep updating and upgrading it. But once you make it transparent, then you are up for the challenge. People can correct you or help you improve. Um, but always think of you know of the best possible number for the questions you're asking, and there are ways to find it. Because if you find it for North Korea's poverty, you can find it for everything else. Right. I think that's a very compelling approach. Let's shift now to the World Emissions Clock. As you mentioned, it's the latest World Data Lab tool, and it's the premier tool focused on providing data related to climate change and greenhouse gas emissions. Describe the World Emissions Clock and what's the unique approach that it brings to sustainable development. It's a very good question because there have been a lot of, has been obviously a lot of work by many climate scientists and that have created the fundament, obviously, on which the World Emissions Clock is built on. But still, the World Emissions Clock creates you know, a new niche because it has the numbers all organized in a very clean way till 2050. And that allows you to create new and maybe sometimes surprising narratives that could help us become climate neutral or you know, closer to climate neutrality, while at the same time also maintaining some degree of prosperity. And um, the core idea is that like the rest of World Data Lab, tools and data models, there is a number that everything has to add up to. That number happens to be 58 gigatons. So that's a very large number that people can't comprehend. But it's that really is the number that, that we, you know, we're polluting every year. We're putting a CO2 or CO2 equivalents into the air. 
58 gigatons is actually 100,000 tons a minute or roughly 2,000 tons a second. So that's roughly how we could visualize it. And what we have done is, uh, and people should look at the website worldemissions.io because then you can, can, can see it in real time, is to find out where these 58 gigatons are coming from. And they're coming from countries and they're coming from sectors within countries. And then you can break it all down and then make it should add up again to a certain number for um, for uh, for energy, for example, or, or electricity generation, there's a number for transport, there's a number for agriculture and all its subsectors, a number for building and cooling, and the number for industry. And again, these numbers are though different across countries. And once you can really drive into the data and look at the three scenarios that we have developed, the business as usual, the so-called NDC scenario, national determined contribution, and the 1.5 degree, you find so much wealth of new data. And especially for every country in the world, every country in the world, you have the numbers and that hopefully then will, will help you find, you know, new insights. Obviously, one metric, which I think is pretty fundamental is to, because we all, it seems that it's very, you know, very intense debate and for good reasons, because we also, even now, today in Vienna, it's really hot um, and we, we feel the climate is getting hotter. But then the question is, how much is actually somebody in, in, in Europe contributing? How much somebody in China, in Korea what is really the, the relevant metric? And so we'll do, we'll do something that's very simple, but it's based on, on, on the fundamental metrics the world has established. The world has established per capita metrics, for example, per capita income. A rich country, in a rich country, somebody earns typically more than $1,000 a month. In a poor country, somebody typically earns less than $100 a month. And that is very well established. We'll do the same with emissions. It happens to be that a... A, per, a country, uh, a, a country where a person emits less than five tons per year. So imagine five tons, so five large cars, equivalent in CO two, is what uh, a good country is, a, a low emission country. Everybody between five and ten tons is a middle emission country, and, and lives in a mission in a middle country. And above ten tons, that's a high emission country. And if you have this very simple metrics, you will actually find a few. Surprises. So there's one surprise, which is actually there's three countries that are rich by the World Bank definition, but are also low emitters, so rich and clean. And that's actually the best you want to be. You want to be rich and clean. Um, there's one country that's dirty and poor, which is Zambia, due to the emissions in, uh, in land use change. Um, and again, could be due to climate change as well that the country is hurt. And you get a lot in between. And you will see if you develop the matrix that some countries, especially middle-income countries, are doing quite well, um, having low emissions, and other countries have much higher emissions, even those same levels of income. So you get much more diversity and variance than you expect. And now maybe the, your listeners are wondering, what are the three rich countries that are clean? And uh, maybe again, somebody can type it in the chat or just think about what they are, what the results are, and nobody has yet found this out, is Romania, Malta, and Chile. Thanks for the insights. It's very fascinating. Can you talk a bit about how different stakeholders have currently used this tool, um, particularly key policymakers or practitioners or decision makers? And what's the ultimate kind of use case that you view this World Data Lab and World Emissions Clock tool being for? So uh, all of our tools are meant to be used by everybody. And that's if it's we meant to use by everybody, it's very hard then to exactly know what then the Theory, you know, what, how change happens, because often change happens indirectly. That means data is being picked up, picked up maybe by journalists, by people in the classroom, be it students uh, you know, or, or school children. And then through that, you get somehow the, 
the, the, the brand and the reference to our core data, data tools. So the world, if you Google in almost any part of the world, world poverty, you Google world poverty, which you expect in the UN or, or the World Bank being very much on top of the list, and you will see that World Data Lab's poverty plot is on top because people just use it and use it as a reference. And that's our main objective because once it's become that, that source of truth and that, that anchor, then, you know, at least, you know, I'm not sure if only good things that can happen, but that's the objective because the pathways out of poverty or towards climate neutrality, there are many and we don't have, we are not the, the only ones who want to contribute. In that. We haven't found the ultimate wisdom of how to, create a climate neutral planet however we have put the numbers together so everybody who's an expert and who wants to be active in the space can use it and so yeah so my one objective that's what we do in the podcast is to get the word out there and then to have say policymakers as an example to have these numbers as a reference so if you are a country that is not Chile, Malta, or Romania, and says, I want to become low emission, then you can use our data to say, what would it take to become part of this good club of countries? And in some countries like Sweden or, or Switzerland, it doesn't take that much. In some of these countries, it just takes some transport reform, and then they're already in the good club. If you are like um, Mongolia, China, Kazakhstan, that's much heavier lifting. Then you, again, Mongolia is a lot land use changing to think about your agriculture sector. In Kazakhstan is obviously oil and gas flaring. So all of those, you know, people know about this, but now they have a number they can refer to, and then they can say, do, do much better cost-benefit analysis because they would know what emission impact you would get if you do policy A or policy B. Going back to your point about the three kind of gold star countries, the wealthy and low emissions, how would you... What's the analytical framework for how we can go about learning from what it is that they're doing that's so good and how we can take those ideas to other places? What's the approach that, that you see World Data Lab taking in that regard? You know, in the end, you need to, you know, there's many angles. One is obviously just check the trajectory. I think one of those three still has rising emissions, so they could lose their gold status, as you put it. So that itself is interesting inside and to see how one can mitigate that increase because some of the two of those three countries, Romania and Chile, just recently became high income. And so they still have a way to go to become, you know, to have that wealth level that you would have in the US or Switzerland or, or more advanced economies in Europe. So that is one. And so that whole decoupling, growing with no or few emission is still out there. The other one is you break down into really subsectors. The world emissions clock has... 24 subsectors, so we, we really cover all the grounds. And um, you should just go through your own country and see where is the biggest block still and where is the biggest block where you're doing particularly poorly compared to your, um, compared to your uh, peers. Because no country is perfect um, in, in every area. All of those countries I mentioned have around four to four and a half tons per capita. So here's another, I think, which is for me even the coolest insight I can give you. There is a, even a better world out there than those three countries. But the world is an artificial country where we combine the best of uh, the world and, um, and we use the best of the rich world because countries want to be and should be rich. Uh, and that's also I think, a right for every country. So what do you do? You check transport. What's the best country? It's actually very hard. There's no real good country, but... Netherlands is the best in the rich world, 1.8 tons. Industry, 
again, not that straightforward. Um, Italy and UK have some degree of industry. They're both around a ton and they seem to be cleaner than others. And clearly a strong service sector helps at 2.8 tons. So that's, it's, that's an okay start and not a great start. But then really the exciting thing happens. Um, if then you take Switzerland for electricity, they just have half a ton. One of the lowest in the, the, the lowest in the rich world, one of the lowest actually in the world, uh, especially in the world for a country that's highly electrified. That's half a ton. So we had three and a half tons now, roughly. Um, but yeah, 3.3 tons. But then you get to buildings. Um, it's anyway a low emitting sector. Sweden has such fantastic buildings that they hardly emit anything. You get a 3.4 tons. And then you take South Korea for reforestation and agriculture. They do, don't emit much in agriculture because it's rice-based. And then they did a mega reforestation program. So they actually have negative emissions in agriculture. So you get roughly a little above three tons per capita. That is a very good world. If we were at three tons per capita in the world, uh, let alone in the rich world, we would be a very different world. We wouldn't have a, a climate debate anymore, um, almost. And so... It is possible, and you need to do this exercise, this kind of exercise I just narrated in one minute. You need to do for for every country and see which is South Korea reference for me, is Holland a reference for me, maybe Kenya is a reference for an African country in energy. There's a lot of references you can build if you use our data machine. That makes a lot of sense. So, you know, some critics might say about per capita emissions that it doesn't capture the fact that a lot of the, let's say, oil and gas output of many Middle Eastern countries, the actual demand comes from developed countries. And so you can make the argument about a lot of products as well in the that's produced and manufactured in the developing countries. But what would you say to that sort of argument? And how do you think through how the per capita emissions framework helps shape that narrative? And what, what's the use case in that sense? In the end, it's, uh, it's less about Per capita, and it's about production versus consumption, because per capita also refers to your total emissions. And so if you have your total emission divided by your number of people, you get per capita. And so the question is, if you take one of those oil and gas exporters, which typically have a, a problematic emission footprint, how do you how do you reflect the fact that, um, that you know, other countries are consuming the products? Broadly put, uh, by the way, um, our model, if you, if you would take this approach to punishes a bit per account surplus countries because if you assume that trade is a proxy, a trade balance for the emission imbalance, so to say, which is, is a very rough assumption. And that's why actually nobody has yet done it. Nobody, there's no alternative than the model we have done because the alternative would be you know, probably three years of work for somebody like you and your peers for a PhD. And again, despite the thousands and ten thousands of climate scientists, nobody has been able to, produce, to, to create a consumption-based emissions model for 24 sectors and subsectors for the whole world for three scenarios to 2050. We have at least done the standard of the world, which is on production, but there's a case to do production. There's also an alternative case to not do it, but at least production is one way to have a consistent framework. Now to the specifics and how it works in the model, if we if you take Saudi Arabia, one of the, the, the unfortunately the worst country in the G20, I think it's 26 tons per capita, so almost three and a half, three and a half times worse than the world average, almost 10 times, 10 tons worse than the US. Um, the oil, the fuel that I put in my car in Austria is counted as an Austrian emission. It's not a Saudi emission. So Saudi Arabia is not emitting so much 
because I'm feeling my car, which anyway, I'm doing rarely because I don't drive much, but still that is that use case. That's a transport emission Austria. There would be a transport emission in the US. So if any of your listeners fuel their car, it's not counted as an emission for, say, Saudi Arabia, if, if that was the, the example. However, the emission from the gas, from the, when the oil has been taken out of the, the, you know, the sea or the land, uh, and often gas flaring is the, the, the key thing that happens when you take gas out. That's why Qatar, by the way, is the, 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 the leader in the world, unfortunately, the, un, you know, the, the number one in our emissions per capita framework. Um, that, the, that you could reallocate to all the countries in the world. You could discuss that. That would be a consumption-based approach. At the same time, there should be an incentive for countries like Saudi Arabia, like Qatar and others to do something about it because the American consumer can't really manage those oil and gas fields in the Middle East. Um, some of their companies are doing it, but government could impose regulations so that these, you know, the oil and gas, which I'm sure has become anyway uh, less dirty than in the past, could become even cleaner. The same if you import coal, electricity generated by coal-fired plants from Poland. So if Germany imports those, is Germany responsible for this now? Poland is actually not so clear. So not such a clear cut. So at least you have one super consistent model that in most countries anywhere works because Germany, to, to close on this, uh, German cars, the production, the steel industry should be counted as Chinese emission because Chinese buy a lot of German cars. But the toys that are produced in China should be counted as German emissions if the Germans buy these toys. So you have even trade flows that could balance itself out. But it's an important question and it's good to drill deeper. But the power of our data model is get the number very quickly and have the right proportion and the right reference. And anyway, all our aim is to get emissions lower. And the way we presented it seems to do the job for now. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, there are a lot of different stakeholders who have set ambitious climate targets to, as what you point out with the, for example, at the country level, the NDCs, the Nationally Determined Contributions. But also, for example, with the private sector, a lot of companies have set net zero targets. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on both fronts. What can the public sector do to implement and meet the targets that they have set? And what can the private sector do? And where do you see World Data Lab playing in, in helping advise either countries or companies to, to move forward? Well, Charles, as, as we discussed now, it is, it's just also important to have really the right numbers. And sometimes it's really very simple things that are, by the way, hard to implement that are not being followed, right? So in the end, you have this adding up constraint. So you always say, what is really the total number? What's the total number? In Massachusetts from wheat emission. That number exists and it's part of the equation. It's not the most important part, but those numbers, those numbers for truck emissions, which may overtake car emissions in the next five to ten years. Um, maybe in Massachusetts, maybe in another state, all of those numbers are really important to have and we should work ourselves hard to get those numbers and then put them in comparison because then we know best where we can make the biggest impact. Um, give you here an example, a very very, you know, visual example. Uh, so China is the number one emitter in the world, large country, and US is number two emitter. China, unfortunately, has a lot of emissions in energy, uh, much more than any other sector. It's seven gigatons. If a chi if Chinese energy sector was as efficient as the Swiss energy sector, and again, you wonder why is actually a poor country has more emissions per capita than a rich country, which is a separate topic. 
if China had the same per capita, per capita emissions in energy than Switzerland, you would eliminate all of the EU's emission at once. That would be equivalent to the EU's emissions, seven gigatons would be gone right away if China would be like Switzerland. And, but if China was like Germany, it would be not this good. So, so although, you know, those things actually should, should wake us up a bit that we wonder, yeah, actually, it should also be possible to do because why, you know, Switzerland has many good things, but it's not that they're the only geniuses in the world. So you can, you, you can drive this. And um, on the private sector, yeah, obviously, in the end, these emissions are also caused by, either caused by a public sector entity, by the company, or by us consumers, because we make certain choices. And here, what World Data Labs is now aiming to do is to, to use, again, our overall consistent framework, which has 58 gigatons, as, as I said before, and then you can break them down in so-called scope one, two, and three emissions, and then in the end, they have to add up back to 58 gigatons. And what we are doing now, starting with a number of companies, to, to estimate what's called the scope three emissions, all these indirect emissions. So the say plastic, I say at first scope two, which is the energy. So if, if I produce an iPhone here, like this iPhone, you know, this is produced in, in certain locations and they use electricity, you can calculate if this is clean or not clean and how much emission has been uh, you know, generated. The same you can do with, uh, with the steel that's element or the aluminum, all these raw materials. So you can could do quite a tedious job and used to some first approximation to see how much of the chemicals emission, how much of the plastic emission, how much of the oil and gas emissions are actually in an iPhone, in a chocolate bar, in a toothpaste, all of that. That's still a hard work, and I think nobody has cracked it completely, but that will be one of our next challenges. Got it. Thank you, Wolfgang. So uh, maybe if you can speak a bit to the overall challenge, speaking of that, the overall challenges and opportunities that you see lying ahead for both developed and developing countries with regards to sustainable development. And also would be curious to hear what excites you the most about some of the trends that you're seeing and observing today. First, I think we and also your your generation and your listeners generation is living in the best time ever, um, which has to be emphasized because not everybody believes us. And so it needs to be articulated and explained. But at least you have all the choices in life that um, your parents and grandparents may not have had to the same extent, and at least to have a global view of things. Um, there's a number of trends in the world that going absolutely in the right direction. Um, so one is say, the poverty reduction. It's been going quite strong, has had a bit of interruption. It's not slowing down because we're entering terrains of difficult countries, especially Africa. But the share of the poor and the absolute number has been going down quite sharply in last decade and also this decade is again going down. Unfortunately, too slow to reach the SDG, but still in the right direction. And even more positive news is the growth of what's called the consumer class. There's 4 billion people now. We just reached that milestone. When I was growing up, there were not even 4 billion people and all of most of them were poor. Now we have 8 billion and half of them are actually quite in, in, a, in, in good condition, and so to say, and, and have a good trajectory and, and lots of hopes for their lives. So all of this is good. There's a lot of driven by, by Asia. Now these people consume and, um, and they pollute. And so that is obviously the big challenge. But as we have seen and discussed, it is not, the future doesn't have to be like the past. And the, even today, we, as a country like Germany has reduced its emission footprint quite dramatically. So the cars today, even though there are quite many, they pollute way less than they used to be. And this trend needs to be accelerated and advanced because we should not have 
a choice between consumption and climate change. We need to actually aim for both. And it is, I would say it's quite easy for a rich person, a rich activist person in the West to say, well, let's consume less. It's, it's not that actually easy to say this to a person in India, Africa and emerging markets when they have the bare minimum. So it's absolutely fair and fine to think of ways. Like we, that's why we want to model and find a bit these counter trends of, yeah, let's try for both. Let's learn from the best and see how many emissions we can reduce. And clearly, you know, the, the, if you take one key area, clean energy revolution is on its way. Uh, solar has become quite cheap and it's starting to accelerate. So there's already some line of sight of how to go down, but it's still, it's not guaranteed and it's climate change is real. If we don't turn the corner properly, then it will become a challenge, but we are in the process to do so. That's my deep conviction. Wonderful. So uh, the to, to close things out, how would you advise different stakeholders, particularly the listeners uh, among us who work in the international development space, take advantage of the World Data Lab's work moving forward? Well, we'd love to have as many stakeholders and people engaged with us. And I hope also that this whole cohort of Harvard interns who were with us uh, this summer can actually be great ambassadors for this. But it's clearly the uh, one, the joy for data and for numbers to really, and it, you don't have to be a mathematician or an economist, you just need to have basic arithmetic skills to add things up properly and to really find find your niche and to find your own insight. And I've been doing this job of this work now for several years, almost 10 years, and I, every day I still find something new, which is my second main message is to be very open-minded, that um, things, some things may be different than you think, and that's a good thing, that we find something new. And, um, and some of that, that more, would I say, the, the, the activist plea that it has very nice, you know, very tension to say, you know, world is coming to an end and it's only getting in the wrong direction. Should uh, my, my request to those listeners is to look just at the data again, because it's not, it's not, it, not everything is going in one direction and definitely not everything is going in the negative direction. Maybe some countries, some sectors may go in the wrong direction. Other countries, it may be going in a neutral direction. Other countries may go in the right direction. And there's a lot of nuance in this whole noisy world. And, um, and that's what we, we can work with and then use that to create meaningful change. Well, thanks so much, Wolfgang, for taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much, Charles, for having me. Thanks again to Wolfgang for taking the time to talk with us today. You can learn more about the Center for International Development's research, upcoming events, and how to join the Gem 23 virtually at cid.harvard.edu. You can learn more about World Data Lab at worlddata.io. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back soon.